What does it mean to be human? Fyodor Dostoevsky once wrote, Every ant knows the formula of its anthill. Every bee knows the formula of its beehive. They know it in their own way, not in our way. Only humankind does not know its formula. Well, what if knowing the formula of what it means to be human was as easy as listening to the creator of humanity? Oh, I can't wait. Oh, so excited for this series. Um, welcome. If you're new here, my name is Ryan Paulson, one of the pastors here. It is a joy to have you with us, and I love the new year, as I mentioned before. It's a great time for you to get uh, plugged into new classes that are coming up. If you haven't been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, can I encourage you, the 22nd of this month, we are going to be celebrating baptisms and, and want to help you get off to a great start this year. All right, let's, uh, let's pray and we're going to dive into the scriptures together. Jesus, thank you for today. Spirit, I pray, would you, would you open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear what you would say to us this morning? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be human? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever tried to come up with an answer to that? My wife and I love this new TV show, This Is Us, and the title of that show got me thinking, what, what does it mean to be us? What does it mean to be human? And I decided that I wanted to teach on that subject, and I sort of started to pull that thread, and I realized shortly in that there's a lot attached to that thread. I mean, if we were to just to go around and say, raise your hand, and what does it mean to be human? We could all probably come up with a little bit of a different aspect of what it means to be human. If you were to ask a, a, a geneticist, somebody who, who studies us on a, on a molecular, on a gene level, what they would tell you it means to be human is to have a certain molecular DNA structure, um, A-G-C-T, repeating over and over in you. It's your DNA and, and, and different chemical compounds attached in, in certain ways are what it means to be human. Do you know you have 3.2 billion letters of DNA in you that define what it means to be you in many ways? If you were to write down every single one of those letters, do you know it would take up 800 dictionaries to define who you are? Uh, we're just sort of scratching the surface now in the genome project and trying to understand what it means to be human. If you were to ask a biologist, they'd tell you a number of things about what it means to be human. Um, they'd, they'd tell you that um, as, a, as a species of mammal, you have, as a human being, a homo sapien, one of the largest brains compared to the ratio of, of your weight, your body weight. That's part of what it means to be human. You have a very developed brain. You have nerves that travel in your brain 170 miles an hour after coffee. After coffee. <laughs> Did you know that your brain can hold five times the amount of information as an Encyclopedia Britannica set? Just your brain. A biologist, he might also try to, de to describe you based on, on your, your body. Did you know that your heart has a strong enough pumping mechanism that if you were to open up your chest, your heart could shoot blood 30 feet. Don't try it. 
Just take their word for it. You, you, your part could pump blood 30 feet. Did you know that the acid in your stomach is strong enough, don't try this either, to dissolve a razor blade? Wow. Did you know, did you know that you have, let me get this right, an estimated 60,000 miles worth of blood vessels in your body? Uh, just for a frame of reference, the distance around the earth is 25,000 miles. In your body, you have over two times that amount of blood vessels if you were to line them all up. This is, this is sort of fun. Your feet have 500,000 sweat glands in them, <laughs> which could explain some things. It, could, it, it helps us understand why certain parts of the body smell different than other parts of the body. Did you know that over the course of your life, you will create enough saliva to fill two full swimming pools? <laughs> yeah, biologists could answer what it means to be human in a a lot of different ways. An existential philosopher might say something like, the fact that you are thinking defines what it means to be human. You think, therefore, you are. The, the, the very being uh, is in itself defining what it means to be human. What do you say? How do you define what it means to be human? Because we all know that while those definitions are true, they're hauntingly incomplete. They, 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 they are the sum of many of the parts, but the sum of the parts don't get to the essence of what it means to be human, do they? Because we can talk about us on a, on a cellular and molecular level, and that's interesting, and we can talk about us on a biological level, we can talk about us on an existential level, but we all know that there's more to being human than just the sum of all of our parts. In fact, Charles Darwin wrote this towards the end of his life. He said, I have said that in one respect, my mind has changed over the last 20 or 30 years. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable, and music, a, a great delight. But now, for many years, I can't endure to read a line of poetry. I've tried lately to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. He sounds like a sophomore guy. <laughs> I've almost lost my taste for pictures or music. Music generally sets me thinking too energetically on what I've been working on instead of giving me pleasure. He said, I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight it formerly did. Listen to his conclusion. My mind seems to have become a kind of machine for grinding general laws out of large collections of facts. But why this should have caused such atrophy of the part of my brain alone on which the higher taste depends, I cannot conceive. If I had to live my life again, I would have made it a rule to read some poetry and to listen to some music at least once every week for perhaps the parts of my brain now atrophied would have thus been kept active through use. Here's what he's getting to. It's impossible to define, to define what it means to be human based on just dissecting the sum of our parts. There's something deeper 
there's something, there's something more. There's something in every single one of us that, that cries out. I, I know that maybe I have 3.2 billion pieces or repeating letters of DNA in me, but that's not who I am. I'm so much more than that. I have an appreciation for beauty. I have a desire for love. I have a thirst for meaning. I need my life to count and to matter. And all of us would say that on some level, even if we can't define it specifically or, or put our finger on it exactly, that what it means to be human is more than just a sum of dividing up the parts. And in fact, I'm going to say throughout this entire series that the way that we define what it means to be human will determine the way that we live. And so it's not an inconsequential question, what does it mean to be human? In fact, it's the very ground that we stand on as people to define our existence, to define why we're here. <coughs> And over the next few weeks, what I want to do is I want to dive deeper into this question, and I want to propose to you that in the first few chapters of the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis and the sacred scriptures, that, that God tells humanity why they were created. He tells us what it means to be human. And over the next eight weeks, we're going to sort of pull this thread and see that it's attached to all sorts of different things, things that really matter to every single life in this room. But if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do today, will you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1? <coughs> Genesis chapter 1. As we begin this exploration of what it means to be human. Now, you may be aware that there are a few debates about the book of Genesis. Specifically, about the first few chapters of Genesis, there may be no more debated passages of scripture than these passages of scripture. So I want to be really clear this morning. Will you look up at me for just a moment? What I want to talk about as we explore this book of Genesis is the why and the who of Genesis. I'm not interested because I don't think that the scriptures are I'm not interested in this discussion. We can have other discussions, and I'd be happy to do that. I'm not interested in the how and the when of Genesis. So we're not going to be talking about the age of the earth. We're not going to be talking about how God created. There's space for you in this church if you want to differ with other people. I hope we have a loving enough community to go, listen, there's some questions, and we want to be honest with that. And if we hold different views, that's okay. What I do want to talk about in the book of Genesis is the why and the who, because I do think that that's clear. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. And this is after God creating, speaking into existence. On the sixth day, this is after creating the heavens and the earth, and you can read about it in the first 25 verses, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
He created. He created. He created. There's, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You could be, but you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see there's a theme. And part of what it means to be human, if we're going to define what that means, and we need to start sort of at the most fundamental level, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about this sort of philosophically, theologically, and then next week we're going to get more practically into this same subject. But what does it mean to be human? To be human means that we are created beings. We're created beings. That from the very beginning, Genesis is telling us That before we know who we are, we must come to terms with whose we are. And we often start further down the road than just saying, okay, the fact that we exist is an intentional, creative act by a creator. That from the very beginning, the scriptures say, you were not an accident. And that's beautiful, really, really good news. Now, if you're not an accident, then here's a few things that are true about you. One, there's a design behind who you are. Have you ever noticed that your bodies work pretty well most of the time? They work in sync with itself. And as we get older and as we get injured, we start to realize more and more that that's a really nice thing when the body works correctly. The more they study it, the more intricately they see that this is a designed mechanism that has the fingerprints of God all over it. Humans are not just the most highly evolved mammal at the top of the food chain. We aren't simply a complex machine that accidentally arose out of some primordial soup. And that's not to say that you can't believe in theistic evolution. You have to see the hand of God behind it all if that's the position you're going to take. That God is at work in and through his creation to create human beings, you and I, that have a specific design to them. And if they have a design, they have a purpose. They have a purpose. Part of what it means to be a created being is to have a purpose, and we're going to get into that in just a second. And the third thing that we see in this Genesis account, if you read through chapters 1 and 2, that this giving birth to humanity that God does is an overflow of his character and his nature, that it's an act of divine love. And the psalmist reflects on this. Listen to what he says. He says, for you, talking about God, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Okay, so just a quick time out. When was the last time you allowed your soul to just sit in the absolutely astounding truth that the creator wove you together? Because the psalmist is going to say, that does something to you. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, oh God, saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet there was not one of them before one of them even came to 
be. Okay, so let's chat for a second. You look up at me. If you are a created being, yes, there's a design behind you, there's a purpose for you, there's a love over you, but maybe even more than that, there's the invitation to step back and recognize that all of life is a gift. Is a gift. One of the most humane things you can do is cultivate a life of gratitude. You want to step more fully into what it means to be human? Become grateful. Recognize that God's fingerprints are all over you, that this isn't an accident, that this didn't just happen by happenstance, but that the creator of it all is behind it, moving in it. And we have to, friends, we have to create rhythms and an ethic of gratitude in our lives as we reflect on the fact that, God, you created me, and the breath in my lungs are a gift from you. Maybe this year you start to do that. Uh, let's look at the second thing that the author of Genesis and narrators talks about it meaning to be human. He said, then God said, let, let us make man, humankind, in our, say it with me, image, in our image and after our likeness. That one of the things it means to be human is to be a created being. The second thing it means to be human is to be uh, created as a carrier of the image of God. A carrier of the image of God. Now, that phrase is loaded. We're going to spend next week on it. We could spend the next 300 weeks on it, and we wouldn't plumb the depths of it. Um, but we're going to talk about that more next week. I want to take a 30,000-foot view of what it means to be created in the image of God today. Richard, Richard Middleton, in his great book, Liberating the Image, which I couldn't highly recommend enough, suggests that the term image of God would have been understood by both the Egyptians and Mesopotamian cultures that were around during the writing of this account in Genesis. And both of those cultures would have had an understanding of that word when it was written. See, because they had seen temples created, they had seen temples built, and the image of the God who was to be worshipped in a temple or in a given area was represented by a king. A, a king was the carrier of the image. And they would set up images of the king in the temple or in an area in the empire where they were ruling, where they couldn't physically be. And so when an early reader of this text heard image of God, they thought, royalty. They thought the king and his image. And so think about how the book of Genesis, how this narrator, this poet is pushing back against the predominant mindset of the day. Instead of one king carrying the image of the divine, you have all of humanity carrying the image. Here, here's what he's saying. That you, that I, that we are royalty representing to the rest of creation what God is like. This is, friend, look up at me for just a second. 
You got to get this. This is a revolution in thought in this day and this time. I can tell, I can see it's lost on you. You're not all that interested. It's okay. (laughs) That every person created is a picture of what God is like, not a picture of his physical appearance, but a picture of his attributes, a picture of his nature, that we as image bearers do two things. One, we reflect God. We reflect God. Walter Brueggemann, the great Old Testament um, author, scholar, says this, there is one way in which God is imagined in the world and only one way. Humanness. Humans are dazzlingly unique among God's creation. The heavens, they declare God's glory, his weight, his beauty, his splendor, his majesty. The heavens declare the glory of God, but friends, humanity carries his image. Have you ever thought about that? That's an unbelievably earth-shattering, life-defining truth. We represent or reflect God. The second thing it means to carry the image of God is that we represent him. Adam and Eve in this creation account that we'll get into in just a moment in um, Genesis chapter 2, they're created in the image of God to work alongside of God if creation, as um, one author, John Walton, suggests, is sort of God creating a temple, then Adam and Eve are the original priests that step into the temple to work alongside of God, to execute God's purposes, to partner with him in what he's doing in the world. We reflect him and we represent him. We represent him. It's why the nation of Israel is considered a nation of priests. It's why the church is considered a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. See, and here's the deal. When we recognize that we carry the image of God, we stop having to have our lives consumed and defined by the approval of men. When we don't understand that we're created in God's image, we need everybody else's approval. But when we understand we carry his image, whose approval do we really need if that's the place that we sit? So, if you're sort of into theology, you're, you're going, okay, Paulson, I get it. I get it. Adam and Eve created in the image of God. But we aren't. I mean, sin entered the world. Are we, are we still created in the image of God? Or has sin completely fractured that? Has sin broken that? That I look around the world and people seem to act in a way that's anti-creation, anti-humanity. Do people still carry the image of God? That's a great question. In 1500... Michelangelo completed one of his most famous sculptures, Pieta. Am I pronouncing that right? Anybody know? Pieta. We're going to go with that. Thank you, Jan. 
Pieta. 1500. From 1500 to 1972, Pieta sat in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome as one of the crowning sculptures and achievements. People went to visit it for those 400 plus years. It sat untouched and perfect. In 1972, somebody broke in with a hammer and hit, I believe it's Mary, on the shoulder and fractured part of her shoulder. Now, does she still reflect Mary? Is it still the Pieta? Sure, sure. And you know what they did? They invited a group of artists to come in for a year, and they slowly but surely repaired this sculpture. It's the same thing that's happened with humanity. Do we still carry the image? Yes. I want to be as clear as I can with that, because if we miss that, it leads to a place that we don't want to get as human beings, and I'll, and I'll talk about that in just a second. So, so yes, we do carry the image. Is the image fractured? Well, not beyond recognition. It's, it's broken, but even in the midst of its brokenness, there's good news, because God has sent his son Jesus the Messiah, to step into humanity to be what the scriptures would say is the second Adam, that Jesus is restoring his creation, restoring what it means to be human, and giving us not only a picture, but healing the broken image within us to restore it to the wholeness of what God has designed it for. Jesus comes and restores humanity to the fullness of the image of God that we were designed to carry. That's what salvation is. Salvation is a, a healing of the image that we were originally designed to be carriers of and still are carriers of. Now, we often get Jesus wrong because we think of Jesus as the least human person to ever live. And we could never be like Jesus. He's, he's, he's sort of the, the ultra, the uber, the hyperhuman. But I want to tell you this morning that Jesus is the most human person to ever live. Not the least human person. Jesus is the picture, not only of what God is like, but the picture of what humanity is designed to be like the, the only one who was truly human. The only way to be truly human is to know the only one who was truly human. His name is Jesus. And so when we talk about being born again, or we talk about being a new creation, we're talking about the healing and the restoration of being created in the image of God. The image of God and the mission of God begin with Adam, but it finds its culmination in Jesus. This is what it means to be saved. Listen to the way that the Apostle Paul puts it in his writing, his letter to the church at Colossae. He says, and, and to put on the new self, the new humanity, the new creation, um, and if you think I'm, I'm just sort of reading that into the text, just wait, which is being renewed in the knowledge, read it with me, church, after the image of its creator. This, what does it mean to put on the new self? It 
it's to step into the new humanity that Jesus purchased on our behalf. That's what it means to be human. We carry the image of God. Next, skip over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 with me. It says in this, and then, and we're going to talk about this Adam and Eve creation narrative, and then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You have normal dust plus divine breath equals humanity. Normal dust plus divine breath equals humanity. We are created beings, we are carriers of the image, and we are a composite. You are a composite, a combination of very normal material and divine breath and life. There was an uh, early heresy, uh, heresy in the early church called Gnostic dualism. And the goal, or the, the proposition of Gnostic dualism was that humanity, while both body and spirit, both dust and breath, that, that dust part of us, that body part of us was evil. And it was to be rejected. The spiritual part, good. The, the body part, Bad And the early church, and you can read it in Paul's writings and John's writings, the early church adamantly, vehemently pushed back against that, saying, no, part of what it means to be human is to have both body and spirit, to have both flesh and soul, to be both dust and breath. You can't be human with only one or the other. See, normal Dust. Having a body doesn't make us human, but we can't be human without one. Chew on that for a while, okay? <laughs> See, because man doesn't live by bread alone, but man can't live without bread, right? Two heads nodding? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. <laughs> this is a reminder dust and breath, that one day, dust in the, in the scripture um, uh, signifies mortality. That one day we were taken from dust and to dust we, what? Shall return. Right, right. So yeah, we have a very physical being. But the scriptures paint this picture of humanity that God breathed. And Adam is this archetype of all of creation that God breathed into him and, and breathed into us the breath of life which means that every single person walking the face of the planet in some way, shape, or form has the breath of God within them. If they're living, walking, moving, breathing, talking, thinking, he has breathed into their lungs and awoken them to life. C.S. Lewis said it like this, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, the work that he'd done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of the work that he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it, God rested from his work, the work that he had done in creation. Now, 
The question we need to wrestle with is what's going on in this passage? Is God tired? It's not a rhetorical question. Answer to me, church. Is God tired? Okay, thank you. Good. We'd have, we'd have to go back to even before this if we said yes to that. Okay, so God's not tired. What's God doing in resting? Well, he's doing two things primarily. One, he's setting up a rhythm for us of what it means to live in his creation. That It means both work and rest. We'll talk about that more later. But I think there's a bigger picture of what's going on in God resting. Um, as John Walton, in his great book, The Lost World of Genesis 1 and 2, says that when God rested, what the, uh, everybody reading this account in the first days of its authorship would have known is that God resting would mean that God enters into the thing that he has just created. It's not him stepping back and going, wow, that's great. It's him entering in to be a part of, to rule and to reign from within, and it's at this point that Adam and Eve are awoken to this creation that God has made, but more than that, the creation that God is in. And part of what it means to be human, yes, is to be a created being, to carry the image, to be a composite of both body and soul, breath and dust, but it, it also, it, implicit within being created human, is that we are in relationship with the creator it's one of the distinct differences in this creation account from any other creation account in this day, is that God is inviting humanity to be a part of what he is doing in the world. Say it like this, that union with God is the purpose behind all of creation. Union with God is the purpose behind all of creation. And so uh, Paul will say in his discussion in the Areopagus, um, quoting from a poet that's not even a follower of the Yahweh God, he says, in, in him, he talks about this, in him, in God, we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He's all over this thing. You are, will you look up at me for a second? You are most human when you walk with God. You are most human when you're in relationship with the divine. That's when you're, you're most like Jesus then. Jesus is the ultimate human. You are most human when you walk with God. All right, so I just want to spend the next five minutes putting some flesh on this. If you're going, okay, Paulson, that's all interesting, great, wonderful. What do we do with that? I'm so glad you asked. You're dialed in. So let's put our humanity into practice. If every human being is created by God and in God's image, then all of humanity and human life is sacred and to be valued all of it. You've never laid eyes on somebody who is not valuable in the eyes of the almighty creator God. And if they are, he is, she is created in his image, created by him, valued by him, then please, people, they've got to be valued by us. 
And if we don't, if we don't appreciate the image of the creator in every part of his creation, then it leads to some pretty desperate places. Let me read you just some of the process of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler is part of developing his approach to the weaker members of society in his 1927 book, Mein Kampf identified the stronger members of society as those created in the image of the Lord and contrasted them to the weaker members who are mere deformities of what the image ought to be and therefore should be cleansed from society. And this is where this goes, naturally. Dietrich von Hildebrand, who is... German theologian at the same time, and one of relatively few Germans who spoke against Hitler was required to leave the country, but he stated this, 1933, all of Western civilization stands and falls with the words of Genesis, God made man in his image. So, as we look out on the world and we, see, and we see racism and we see sexism and we see abuse and we see the poor and we see the immigrant, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow as followers of God, our hearts have to be stirred by that. They must. These are people created in the image of God. Yeah, I mean, I know we see it on National Geographic, you guys, but it's so much more than just a picture in a magazine. It's the heartbeat of the creator. And so how do we wrestle with this? How do we step into this? Every person, you've never laid eyes on somebody that isn't valued by the creator and therefore valuable, period. And as followers of Jesus, it's not enough for us to just affirm that things are wrong. We have to find ways to step into them. We have to. We must. Our humanity depends on it. Second, Adam and Eve created to be caretakers, to be stewards, to be priests, in the garden, and all of humanity, they're the archetype, all of humanity are created for the same purpose that all human beings are called to be stewards over God's good creation. Now this means that we take care of our dust, right? We take care of our, so one of the applications might be, okay, I go out and go on a walk every once in a while, I go on a run, I should be a steward of my own body, of my own spirit, of my own self, that's part of what it means to be a steward, but Christians should be the most ardent environmentalists, we are the original environmentalists, Adam and Eve were, and we should care about God's creation, we should care about others, finally, finally. It's his breath in our lungs. So we cry out to him that all human beings are spiritual. There's a yearning 
inside everybody that walks the face of the earth. The eternity has been placed in there in our hearts, and they were, you were, we are designed to live with God. And while every square inch of his globe is furnished with and drenched in his glory, you and I know that there's certain rhythms of life that tune our heart to see his grace. And so I want to encourage you as we begin this new year, what does it look like for you to cultivate your spiritual life in a new and deep and fresh way? That maybe it's taking one of these classes that we're offering, the Apostles' Creed one would be great, leadership class would be great if you're looking at what does it look like to be a steward, to be a caretaker, an investor in the places that God has called me to quote unquote reign over or to have influence over. Maybe you go, all right, this is the year I'm going to download the YouVersion app and I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, not just Genesis in a month, okay? Maybe this is the year. All to create an awareness of a rhythm of a realization of that it's his breath in our lungs. So we cry out to him. You're a create. What does it mean to be human? You're a created being. You're a carrier of his image. You are dust and breath. And you were designed to be in relationship with the almighty God. You are most human when you walk with God. Every ant knows the formula of its anthill. Every bee knows the formula of its beehive. They know it in their own way, not in ours. Only humankind does not know its formula. Let's learn our formula together. And then let's practice what it means to be fully human. Let's pray. Jesus, in the quietness of this moment, we just want to ask you to drill deeper in just a few of the things that you want us to walk away with. Father, for the person in this room who is struggling with self-worth, I pray would they hear clearly this morning that regardless of of what their resume looks like or their bank account looks like or, or their past looks like or they think their future's going to look like, that they are created in your image by you with design, with purpose, and out of love. I pray, Lord, that you would just impress that on all of us this morning, but especially on that person that's wrestling with purpose and meaning and hope. Jesus, I pray that you would raise up a church that wouldn't just say that things are wrong or that things are bad, but that would step in to make a difference, affirming that you love, designed, and care for your creation. Lord, may we retake up that mantle in a way of love, in a way of care, in a way of goodness. But Lord, would you teach us what it looks like? To not just sit on the sidelines, 
but to play the part in caring for your creation that you designed us to play. Father, most of all, we pray, through Jesus, would you teach us what it looks like and what it means to be fully human. We pray in his name. Amen.